Well, welcome everyone. It does look like there's some new people here. People here for the first time? Okay, that's enough. Very good. So I'll reintroduce myself. <laughs> I'm Swami C, Swami Chid Brahmananda, which is why we just go with C. Uh, so you can just refer to me that way. Hey C, or Swami C, or just Swami, or hey you, really anything is fine. Uh, I have been a Vedantist monk for uh, 20 years this year, actually. I joined in San Francisco in 1999 after I took a trip, a rather momentous trip to India for six weeks. I, uh, I left a computer engineer and came back a monastic, so it was quite a, quite a trip, quite a vacation that I went on. And uh, I, I really never intended to be a Vedantic monk. I never intended to be a Vedantist. Um, the way that it kind of happened is uh, I had a roommate, uh, Philip, who was a Vedantist, and he had a very serious practice. Uh, he would get up at five in the morning every morning and he'd go into his closet and sit in the closet for an hour and a half and then come out, get ready and go to work. And then after work, he'd come home in the afternoon. He was a school teacher, so he'd get home around four and he would go in the closet and sit for like another hour. I never asked him about it. I, you know, fine. <laughs> if you want to go sit in the closet, that's fine. But he was so dedicated. We, were, we, were, I, we shared an apartment for like five years and he never, to my knowledge, missed a single moment of his practice. Every day, even when he called in to work sick, he would still go into his shrine, which was what was in the closet, and, uh, and sit no matter what. And um, I was not a religious person at the time, uh, and so I never asked him any questions. I, one, I was too proud, uh, and two, I just didn't want to be proselytized. I didn't want to be worked on. So uh, when he took a trip to India, he went to India for a year, actually, uh, to a monastery and asked me to pay all the bills. And uh, that the, the trade-off was that when he got back, he would do the same for me and I could do a nice trip. So uh, he went to India, and while he was in India, I raided his bookshelf in his room. I went in and I figured, I was curious what he was so involved in that he was so dedicated to and also never felt the need to push on me, you know, or, or to mention to me. And so I just started reading, and I, I just kept reading, and kept reading. And then I took my own trip to India and met some great swamis uh, wandering in the mountains over there, which is such an idyllic and foreign thing for us to think of. But it was really a delight. And I, uh, I, I, I never ran into a boundary. I never ran into a limit where I had to promise not to say something, or not to do something, or not to think something, or not to ask something. And uh, the, the, I never ran into that response, oh, God said so. <laughs> you know, we're, we're, that was the end of the question. You can't go any farther than that. And growing up, I, I couldn't even get past the first one or two levels before that was the answer. And uh, it was quite a struggle for me. Uh, and so I was very excited to find uh, an ideology or a philosophy, which is what I was investigating at the time, that could answer questions no matter how far out I went. You know, why can't I have sex before marriage? You know, nobody ever had an answer for me for that. Vedanta has a beautiful answer for that, and a very satisfying answers. And so, uh, you know, I grabbed that one off the top of my head. Sorry if I took you to a bad place. Tell us but, the uh, answer to that. Okay, the answer to that. The answer to that. Well, we could jump into it, although that might take a minute or two. But one on one, we can talk about it or we'll fill it in. It is a beautiful answer, and it makes a, a huge amount of sense, and it's quite lovely. Um, and it's, and it, it ends up softening the edges, too. It's not a thing like that. So uh, anyway, so I, I lived with Swami Prabhupada He was my main teacher there for about 15 years. And then I went and took my final vows in India in 2012 and uh, donned the orange robes at that point. A sannyasin is just someone who has completely renounced the world. Uh, I don't deal with money. Uh, I don't, uh, uh, I don't work in exchange for anything, I don't, you know, all of those things. It's just, but the vows, there's lots of vows involved, but basically the, the, they fall into two categories, that my life is to be for the good of humanity, so anything that's for the good of humanity or, or, or living beings in general, uh, then I'm permitted to do that, encouraged to do that, and anything that I do for my own spiritual realization, my spiritual growth. So those are the only two categories of activity that uh, aligned with the vows that I took in 2012. 
And so I came back from that, and they promptly posted me in Hollywood, California. <laughs> Which, wow, two blocks from, uh, from the Capitol building, Capitol Records building. They, I mean, they're right in the mix of it there. Uh, and I was there for a little over a year, and they, they are kind of in charge of the, the center that we have here in D.C. On, in Silver Spring. And so they asked me to come out and uh, help uh, Swami A, Swami Atmagyanananda, uh, with the work out here. And uh, like I mentioned earlier, I always like to, to comfort people. Vedanta is a non-proselytizing religion. There's no, good morning, Shukla. There's no, uh, no, nothing to convert to. The idea is that God has every single person exactly where he wants them or she wants them and uh, is working on their growth and expansion in, in all of their own circumstances in their own way. Life and religion are one in Vedanta. We don't, there's, not a, there's not a separate thing called spiritual life or religious life. Your life in its entirety, everything you do is your spiritual life. And so you try and bend everything that you do to be an advantage to your spiritual life. Uh, so, my motive is not to convert or to convince or to change ideas or anything like that. I'm not a guru. I make sure people know that. I'm not a guru. I am a cheerleader. <laughs> That's how I see myself. I, I want to get next to your practice. I want to dig in with you and I just want to cheer you on from the sidelines. Say yes, yes, yes. Run, run like the wind. Investigate these things and find your answers. And so everything that I have to say this morning, uh, to me they're truths, to me they're things that I, that I find to be real. Uh, that's not a requirement. If, uh, if you don't like something I say, simply cut it off and toss it out. And if you like something else that I do say, grab that and keep it. Uh, my main teacher, Sri Ramakrishna, says that, uh, you know, that scripture is like a big fish. He says it's up to you to chop the head and the tail off and to take the part that's digestible. And so I encourage you to do that. You, you have uh, free, free reign to take and leave what you like. And questions, there are no out-of-bounds questions. Uh, there is no such thing as blasphemy as long as the intention is not to blaspheme in Vedanta. You know, so it all has to do with your intentions. So please uh, feel comfortable, feel open, and let's just have a great time talking about beautiful things, uh, particularly today. The, the uh, name of the lecture is The Goal and Its Attainment. And what I wanted to do is look at some saints from different traditions uh, who had this realization experience, or uh, Christians are talking about it now as a unitive experience with God, that, that bonding, that, uh, well, that consummation of marriage, that's another Christian image for the relationship with God. So I wanted to look at some people that experienced that uh, that were outside of uh, the standard traditions. We're going to look at Eckhart Tolle. We're going to look at uh, the Peace Pilgrim. Has anybody heard of the Peace Pilgrim? No? Okay, good. Well, only two. I, well, I can't wait to share about her. She is an amazing woman, and uh, she is one of America's very own. And uh, she doesn't belong to a particular tradition. She did it completely on her own. Uh, it was quite radical life. We'll talk about that some more. So I wanted to go through and look at the elements of this spiritual realization, this, this gem of practice, and uh, hopefully to encourage you that this, this is what's available. This is what spiritual life is about. It's about seeing God. It's not about reading about him or learning about him or coming up with ideas about him. It's about seeing him, seeing her, having a, a beyond experience experience of the divine. And... Uh, I say that because uh, it, it's, it's an experience that doesn't happen in the mind. You know, in Vedanta, you are separate from the mind. You're, you are the image of God. You are the soul, and you're looking through the mind and through a body. But they're not you. They don't identify you ex except for the fact that you've identified yourself with them, which is what our trouble is. Uh, that's, the that's the central narrative problem in Vedanta is that you have mistaken yourself for being material, for being a body and mind, and not realize that you're a soul, that you are the image of the beloved. And uh, we're going to take a look at that, what that means uh, a little bit also. We started last week with that because it's very important. The, real, the whole gist of this is that if you want to know God, the best thing to do is to know yourself because you are created in his image. Apparently, many of the traditions say that and teach that. 
And so to know yourself is to know the divine. Now, what is yourself? That's what we have to determine. That's what we have to go looking for. And how do we find it? Because our problem is that uh, very much like, the, like Adam and Eve in the garden, uh, we go out through the senses to make our decisions. You know, Eve looked at that fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, and the first thing she noticed about it was that it looked like it was good for food. And, uh, or good, it was pleasing to the eye. That was the first thing. So it, it was attractive. It was beautiful. That stepped into her senses, and then she kept thinking about it, kept looking at it, which is the problem. And she said then, oh, look, it looks like it would be good for food, that it would give me wisdom, and that it would make me like God. And we live our life like that. We live in the senses. We got up in the morning, oh, what would I like to do today? You know, we, we plan our vacations. Oh, where would I like to go? Material. Yes. We are a spiritual entity mistaking ourselves for being a physical entity. And you say, that's absurd. But you do it every single night. When you go to bed, you do the opposite. When you go to bed and you fall asleep and you have a dream, you, a corporal entity laying in bed, identify with a purely uh, thought body, I guess it would be, in your dream that doesn't have any existence, doesn't have any reality except in your dream, and you're fully convinced that's who you are. And, and, not, and a lot of times that body's not even complete. You know, I've had dreams where I've looked down and there was nothing there. I've had dreams where I looked down and I was a dog, <laughs> you know, or a cow, or something like that, or just a non-entity, just a point of reference. So we go through this exercise every night. We see that we can step into a world that's completely fabricated by ourselves, where everything is equally us, and yet in that dream you choose a particular point to identify with, a particular point through which you interpret the rest of the dream. So this particular point is being chased by five guys, and so you're running in all panic, but those five guys are equally you. They exist in your own mind. They're not in the bedroom with you. If you were to wake up at that moment, there's not a cityscape, you're not running, there's no guns, there's no danger, and you wake up still sweating and your heart beating. Ugh. Oh, thank God, just a dream. And the sages say that that is exactly what this experience is. That we are, as it were, in the dream of the divine. And that the divine has done the same thing. He has identified with a thought body, this body. And is living this life through this body, convinced, not that he's God living in a body, but that he's me living in a body. And because of that... Life goes on. You know, not realizing our nature, we go on living like this. And we get clues of that. Even Jesus, you know, Jesus said that quite astonishing thing when he was looking at that mountain. He says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, he said, I like what he says. He doesn't then just tell you the thing. He goes, verily I tell you the truth, which means, dude, I am really laying this on you. I mean this. <laughs> he says, if you have faith the size of this mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, get up and throw yourself in the sea, and verily I tell you the truth, it will throw itself into the sea. Like, wow, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, that is amazing. But then he also walked on water, all right? And he also caught fish out of the right side of the boat instead of the left side of the boat. So he was onto this. He knew that if you could figure out the fact that you're the dream and not the dreamed, that you can control every aspect of your reality, whether it's a mountain, an ocean, schools of fish, anything like that. Well, that's not our goal. That's just kind of a side note to kind of give evidence that this is at least not totally foreign to our culture and to our philosophies in Christianity, but that this is a, a universal notion. So uh, anyway, I've gone way overboard on my introduction and wandering off into things I like to talk about. We're gonna jump in to our lecture now I'm going to start with St. John of the Cross, and he writes this wonderful little piece here. He says, through the theological life, through a life about God, about the divine, a life of faith, of hope, and love, a person uproots every habitual disorder and becomes one with God. Now, I highlighted that little phrase, uproots every habitual disorder. <laughs> As a Vedantist, that's rich in meaning. What is our disorder? It's just what I mentioned. It's that you, the infinite, ever-present, pure, un unconditioned love, 
unconditioned intelligence, absolute existence, have confused yourself with a tiny, small, limited body that's mortal and subject to all kinds of external influences and, uh, and really has to, 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 in a sense, cower in fear uh, in that condition. So, and, and what makes us like that? It's, it's, it's because it's what we think we are. How do you say this? In Vedanta, when you start sitting and thinking about things, when you, when you go into that meditation and you've been sitting in an empty room for 15 years, things start to occur to you that might not have occurred to you in the kitchen you know, on your first year. And one of the things that really was interesting to me is that you cannot validate that I exist outside of you. You, you can't validate that that really is out there. You've only got five senses. There's no way for you to validate what their source is. Now, how do you know this? Well, you can go to a movie and fool all of your senses. You can sit there, you're looking at a white screen with colors flashing off of it and an accompanying soundtrack that may or may not be associated with those colors. But your mind, when you go to that movie, it's actually you that provides the movie. You say, wait a minute, what are you talking about, monk? How can I provide the movie? The fact is, there's just colors on that screen. One looks like a man and one looks like a woman, and then they go on and it sort of reminds you of a breakup, and then you remember a breakup that you went through and suddenly you're in tears and it's his fault. You know, how could he do that to her? And you're all up in arms, you're at a movie. You're watching colored lights on a white screen, but you are assigning all the meaning. Ah, oh, that's a man. Oh, that's a woman. Oh, they're in relationship. Oh, the relationship is breaking up. I know what it's like to break up a relationship. Ouch, oh my gosh, I feel for them. And you're deeply hypnotized into the whole story, even though you're sitting in a seat in your own life and none of this is happening. None, your mind alone is making it all happen and giving it its assigned value. That's the condition that we're in right now. And what makes it worse is that we've all come up with a convention that we're gonna do this together. <laughs> If you get ideas that are too far out from the norm, you know, we'll pull you back in, don't you worry. <laughs> we'll keep it squared up like this. We'll keep paying you for your job, you know, we'll keep encouraging you to keep your house and to do all of those things. Not that any of that's wrong, I'm not saying that. But it's this idea, these, these habitual disorders. God, uh, did, remember, I, I talk a lot about Christianity because I assume that, mo that most people know, or at least growing up in this culture, have that as a background. And so there's lots of references that are very helpful to me in that. You know, when, when Jesus says, he says, look at the lilies of the field, they neither toil nor spin. And yet I say that Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of those. You know, he says, look at the birds in the air. They don't, they don't sow, neither do they reap. And yet I tell you, that the Father does not let them go hungry. You know, so there's all these indications that, that, that the Beloved is taking care of us, that, that God is looking after us. And actually in Vedanta, the ultimate truth is that you realize that you are not the doer, that you were just observing all of this going on. You come to know that you were the dreamer and not the dreamed, and that the dream was just going on as it went on while you were at peace and rest in, in, a, in, the, in, the, in the dream scenario, in a bed, comfortable and happy. And no matter how bad the dream gets or how good it gets, when it's over, you wake up and feel fine. You no longer feel like you have to go figure out, why were those guys chasing me? I'm gonna go seek vengeance. <laughs> None of that, just the fact. You wake up, ah, it was a dream. Everything forgotten, everything goes. And the sages say that that is the same nature as reality here. When you wake up from here, all of the big questions, all of the big problems, all of the big philosophical issues here, all of the big physics discoveries will all melt away with the simple words, oh, it was a dream. <laughs> Oof, I can let that go. I'm infinite, ever free, ever pure, in bliss, that self. So throughout the theological life, the life of faith, the life of hope, the life of love, a person uproots every habitual disorder and becomes one with God. In their inner dynamism, these virtues grow by purifying and purify by growing. To the extent that they unite a soul with God, 
they empty of it of what is not God. And to the extent that they empty it of what it is not God, they unite it with God. As they grow, there is a movement in prayer from sense to spirit, from ideas about Christ to an inner, more personal relationship, an interiorization and simplification in the way of communing and being with him. In their activity, they constitute the journey in faith. John, in fact, thinks, thinks of them as forms of God's self-communication, transcendent truth, generous love, possession. In our lives, they are capable of incorporating all kinds of means and at the same time of making these means relative, propelling us to communion with the living God, distinct from all means. <laughs> no, this one, no, this is from the complete works, the collected complete works of St. John of the Cross. He was a medieval monk, not, not St. John the, the, the Apostle in the Bible. All right, so he, he talks about a couple of things here. This idea of purifying. Uh, for, in the West, we, we, when we think of purity or pure people, we think, you know, people who are controlled, controlled their body physically. They're, they're you know, <laughs> they're sexually pure. We somehow associate it with sex and, and things like that. In Vedanta, purity means the removal of me and mine. That's all. If you remove me and mine, in a, you know, abuse of sex falls out of the way, Lying falls out of the way, stealing falls out of the way, selfishness falls out of the way. Everything is associated with me and mine in the mind. And so it's the idea of removing that me and mine. And uh, that's, that is what uh, the, the, the Buddhists in their, in their meditation practice, that's what's behind this idea of watching the mind. Let everything come and go. Don't grab anything in that image. Don't touch it with the finger of I, of mine, me and mine. Let it pass and see that it has nothing to do with you. There's several things that you'll learn as you do that that's very interesting. One is that you're not in charge of your thinking. You say, yes, I am. Well, no, you're not. Every single thought that you have is directly related to the previous one, and you can't break that. You can't break that chain. That is the chain of samsara, of life, you know, of karma, the cause and effect, just looping around and around. So your experience as a person is about that looping of the mind, that, that, that wheel of dharma that continues to turn. So what you did yesterday determined in a large part to what you experience today. What you did in the first 10 years of your life or 20 years is still largely affecting you today. Those experiences you had as a youth have, have a disproportionate emphasis on how you feel and what you see today. Right? So you get this notion that you project onto the world around you. And it has to do with that idea that we don't, we, we don't have any way of verifying anything out there. We can't learn anything about what's out there. What happens when I have a conversation with you is you give me words, right? You give me words that sort of are very clunky. They, they have an idea attached with them, but I can't see the imagery that's in your mind when you're using the word mother. You know, when you, when you use the word mother, you have a very particular image, a very particular experience, a historical relationship, all of that that's imbuing that word mother with meaning. When you give me that word mother, you're not able to give me any of that meaning. You just give me the word mother, and then I take that and project all of my own imagery, my own history, my own experience, and say that I understand you. And that is, that's, that's super clunky. <laughs> that's a super clunky means of communication, and that's why there's so much trouble for us all getting along, is that we can't, we can't get the meaning out of our mind into the mind of somebody else, aside from these clunky words, these clunky ideas. And it's that projection that, that changes everything. So in this idea of purifying the mind, it's, moving, it's, it's removing that me and mine from it and coming to a purer state, a broader state. And why is that necessary? Because what you are by nature is unconditional love. But by the time that unconditional love gets squeezed through this body and mind and manifests on this side, it's no longer unconditional. It's no longer infinite. It's no longer deep. Why? Because it's had to be forced through all of these, these, uh, these uh, 
prisms of mind that determine, oh wait, I, I, don't, I don't love everybody. <laughs> I like my wife better than that person. I, I want my, my family is more important to me than that. My country is more important to me. My race is more important to me. My X, Y, Z, it goes on and on and on to the degree that you've identified with all of these external adjuncts, all these external adjectives, to that degree your love becomes warped. It becomes a tool of selfishness, right? Because you believe, I'm this body, so it's very important that I get that last piece of pizza and that you don't. <laughs> you know, I hate that feeling. You're standing in line, you know, there's four pieces of pizza left and you're the fifth guy in line. And you're sitting there, you're cursing every single person that takes a piece of pizza. Oh, how selfish he is. Does he not think of anybody else in the line behind him? God, I can't, can't believe I'm behind four selfish people. <laughs> you know, so then you don't get your piece of pizza. That's our dilemma. Because you identify as body and mind, you take this infinite love that you are, this infinite intelligence that you are, this immortal self that you are, and you assign it all of those limitations and you squeeze that love through, and it comes out into the world as selfishness, comes out into the world as whatever, you know, agenda. And so everything that you do has this agenda tied to it. And so many of the practices in, 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 in spiritual life are to undo that. Remove this sense of I and mine from things. Purify the mind so that it becomes just a clear piece of glass at, at, at worst. So that, that that image of the beloved, that image of God that's within you, can come out on this side un, undistorted. You know, come out this side clean and beautiful and infinite in its giving. That's the difference between a Jesus and a Buddha and a Ramakrishna and a Krishna and a, from me and you. That's the difference. You see, we're all on a scale. You've got, you've got your really bad, quote, bad folks over here. You know, you've got your Hitler and whatever, whoever else you want to grab out of history that really misbehaved themselves. Why? Because you can see that their ideal, that which they served, that which they loved, was extremely body-mind based, right? Hitler's ideal, he loved it very much. He was motivated by love, there's no doubt. He loved his ideal. But his ideal excluded most people. You know, it had to do with eye color and hair color and nationality and background and height of your forehead, the size of your nose, whatever those things were that he measured to determine if you were properly Aryan or not. So his ideal, his love of his ideal, injured a huge number of people, but benefited a very small number of people. Whereas on the other end of the scale, you've got the Jesus, you've got Buddha, you've got these, these luminaries who understood that they were not a body, that they were not a mind, that they were the image of the beloved, that they were an image of pure love, an image of pure intelligence, of pure existence. And so their acts of love rolled out freely, benefited millions, and hurt a small number of people. There were a few Jewish Sadducees and Pharisees who were really unhappy with Jesus, whose lives were really messed up by his ideas. So you see, we're all somewhere in that trajectory. And so the more we remove the idea of me and mine from the mind and all of those habits of me and mine and the way that John is talking about it here, anything in your mind that is not God, you remove. Anything that is in your mind that is God, you nurture. Right? So these ideas of love, these ideas of fairness, this empathy, seeing yourself and others. Because that's the magic behind all of this. And in, in Vedanta and in Christianity and all the world's traditions, if you go to the mystics, they all openly say that there is only one without a second, that this is all God, this is all divine. Nothing came from nothing. It's impossible for something to come from nothing. Otherwise, you're not talking about nothing. <laughs> you know, so things, God created everything out of himself. Now, that's not to say this is him, you can, you can say this is him, but this is only part of him. God, God can have no adjective. God can have no word. When, he, when, when Moses asked, who are you? He said, I am, period. He didn't give you any adjectives. I am this, I am that, I am no limiting adjuncts. God is that infinite, ever pure, ever free self. 
Ramakrishna had a wonderful way of describing God. He says, God is the only thing that has not been polluted by the tongue, which means there is no way to limit him, no word that can encapsulate him, no religion, no singular religion that can hold him. That was this idea in the, of the Sanatana Dharma that we talked about last week, that religion is not plural. There is only one religion in the world, but there are many traditions around that one religion, many practices around that religion. But we are all practicing the same religion. All religions are trying to get you to reduce your ego, to surrender to love, and to realize that inner image of the beloved that you are, and to let that manifest freely in the world. Every mystic of every religion would be happy to sit down around the same table and celebrate those ideals, those wonders. That is religion. And in religion, actually, according to Vivekananda, who is one of the disciples of my teacher, Ramakrishna, is that, uh, that uh, um, <laughs> I forgot what I was going to say about that. I had to run off and think about how much I have to tell about Ramakrishna. That, uh, um, yeah, that, well, well he, he talks about that idea that, that God is both form and formless. You know, that to those who need a form, he, he like water becomes ice. He becomes a form that represents their highest ideal of love, you know. So, so God is all of these things, and these mystics from all of these traditions celebrate that and lift that up. Let's jump into our first uh, example of someone who saw this, who actually came to the space of touching this. Now, it's important here to understand that we're going to talk about things that we are not familiar with. So any ideas that we actually form are not going to be accurate. <laughs> but we have to come as close to that as we can because we don't have access to a non-mind condition just yet. And what I mean by that, just to jump into it, uh, is the mind requires three things in order to conceive of something, subject, object, and the relationship between them. The mind only does two functions. It distinguishes and categorizes. It just looks for difference and then categorizes them according to those differences. That's the only thing your mind does. And uh, uh, we're trying to understand that that's the nature of the mind and that it's not us, that we're looking through the mind, which is very helpful if you've got any mental troubles like depression or whatnot. Those understanding that you are not mind, that you're only looking through a mind is very helpful. You identify with what you are. What are you? Absolute love, absolute unconditioned love absolute unconditioned intelligence, and pure existence. Those are the only things that are true about you. Anything else that you want to say about you actually belongs to mind, is not you. And why is it important to understand that? I'm going to share something that taught me this. It's a very personal thing. Most people don't share these things. I'm going to, because it makes the point very well. Remember when I said that when we talk to each other, we can only hand each other a word. And when we get that word, then we have to project our own meaning on it. And so there's not, there's not real communication happening there. There's not real empathy happening there. Now, it's possible. I've only had the experience once in my life. And this is one of those things you can chop off and throw away if you want, or you can keep it and treasure it if you like. It's just my own experience. I met a, a holy woman, Prabhaja Kamoshapana, back in 1999. And I had the experience, which I won't talk about in, in particular, where she gave me the meaning with the words. She spoke to me <laughs> in this experience without ears. I didn't hear words and then have to take those words and collapse them into meaning and put my projections on them and then say, I understand. When she, she only said two words to me actually. She only said two words. She said, it's okay. Two very innocuous, very bland words. I cannot tell you those two words are why I'm a monk. Because when she gave me those two words with the meaning, with everything that her heart had, had put into those words, and she bypassed my ears, she bypassed my intellect, and gave me directly a self that I was not even aware of, that was separate from mind, separate from senses, separate from body, a mind, a self that, that there's no way to touch. There's no way to know that that's what you are. That's why it takes so much effort to separate out our confusion, to come to realize that we are that, something separate and, 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 and infinite and beautiful 
apart from body and apart from mind. And that uh, with, with that, those two words, it's okay, I felt just as if a thousand years of, of pain, a thousand years of insecurity, uh, the, the constant wondering of where I am and what am I doing and what do people think of me and to, will I get that job, am I good enough for that job, and, you know, all of these weird just pressures that have become so ordinary that they're not even in the conscious mind, they just fell away, just fell away, and my whole composure fell with them. I just, I collapsed and just had a, a, a bawling session that lasted about 20, 25 minutes, where I, I was bawling like, you know, like that, that little kid with tear-streamed eyes, and he can't even breathe. He's <laughs> that was me at 35, you know, standing there weeping like that, at that level. That, this is what we're going for. Now, Eckhart Tolle had this experience, a very profound experience, in a very simple way. He was extremely depressed, which was an interesting thing I found out about him. He struggled with deep depression. And uh, he was sleeping uh, one night and woke up in the middle of the night in a particularly dark mood. And he said to himself this, I cannot live with myself any longer. Has anybody else said something like that about yourself? Break it down for a minute, because Eckhart Tolle heard himself say that to myself, or say that to himself, and he contemplated it, because it surprised him. He said, I cannot live with myself any longer. This was the thought that kept repeating itself in my mind. Then suddenly I became aware of what a peculiar thought it was. Am I one or two? If I cannot live with myself, there must be two of me, the I and the self that I can't live with. Maybe, I thought, only one of them is real. All right, so I get my choice. I can either read my text or see you. <laughs> so he, he woke up in the middle of the night. He just said a simple thing, a thing that all of us had said to ourselves. I can't live with myself. I can't stand it when I'm that way. You know, all these things that we very regularly say about ourselves without catching the very central clue in there. That obviously you are somebody who's watching this self that you've identified with. But the self you've identified with isn't you. You instinctively know that, but you haven't yet realized it. It has not yet become a part of your, your DNA of who you are and what you are. Then I suddenly became aware of what a peculiar thought it was. Am I one or two? If I cannot live with myself, there must be two of me. The I and the self I cannot live with. Maybe, I thought, only one of them is real. I was awakened. He falls asleep again. But that idea uh, germinates. And in the morning, he says, I was awakened by the chirping of a bird outside the window. I had never heard a sound like that before. My eyes were still closed, and I saw the image of a precious diamond. Yes, if a diamond could make a sound, the sound of this bird is what it would be like, I thought, as I opened my eyes. The first light of dawn was filtering through the curtains without any thought, and that's a very important thing. This is not a thought experience he's having here. This is something that's happening without mind. Without any thought, I felt I knew that there is infinitely more to light than what we realize. That soft luminosity filtering through the curtains was love itself. Tears came into my eyes. I got up and I walked around outside the window. I had never heard such a sound before. My eyes were still closed and I saw the image of a precious diamond Yes, if a diamond could make this sound, this is what it would be like. That soft luminosity filtering through the curtains was love itself. Tears came into my eyes, got up, walked around the room. I recognized the room, and yet I knew that I had never truly seen it before. Everything was fresh and pristine, as if it had just come into existence. I picked up things, a pencil, an empty bottle, marveling at the beauty and the aliveness of it all. That day I walked around the city in utter amazement at the miracle of life on earth, as if I had just been born into this world. 
For the next five months, I lived in a state of uninterrupted, deep peace and bliss. After that, it diminished somehow in intensity, or perhaps it just seemed to because it became my natural state. I could still function in the world, although I realized that nothing I ever did could possibly add anything to what I already had. Is that not beautiful? And what a wonderful way. He says that he had the experience that light and love are the same thing. Now walk out on this day and have that feeling in your mind. Is that not going to change your experience of being here? To see this love flooding everything, nurturing everything, feeding all of these trees, warming all of these people, revealing all of these colors, all of this beauty, to see it and understand that it is God, it is divine. It is love itself, flooding the universe, giving everything life. Without it, nothing exists. It's not an accident that the first thing that man worshipped was fire. It's because of fire, all of this. Because of fire, our existence. You know, Without that sun, the plants would die, the oceans would freeze, and we would be dead within a week. The lucky ones. Most of us would probably be dead the first day. But, uh, Anyway, this idea, this knowledge of understanding, you see, because we can now walk out and have the thought, oh, look, the sun is love. That's a beautiful idea. I really like that. He walked out and knew that the sun was love. It wasn't a thought process. It wasn't an intellectual idea. It wasn't an equation that he had put together in the mind that he could now enjoy in the mind. This was a reality that was beyond experience. It was an understanding of definition of who he was, what he was, and what the condition of the world is. To see it soaked in love. And for five months, if you go on and read further in his experience, he sat for five months. He was on disability, obviously. He sat for five months on a bench, on a park bench in the park, because he was too overwhelmed with joy to move. This understanding, that last thing he says, that, I could, that anything I could ever do could not add anything to what I already had. He was full. If you know your nature, you're full. Look at those who did. Look at Jesus. He was full. He didn't do all of that wandering to get anything from anybody. He didn't do all that teaching to get anything from anybody. He had no home. He had no expenses. He had nothing that he needed. God, he knew, was soaking him in love and would take care of anything that was necessary. And living accordingly, he walked accordingly. And history will never forget the names of these great ones. All of us are amazed when we hear their names and their stories, when we read of their non-experience experiences. Let's talk about Peace Pilgrim. Now, the Peace Pilgrim, I, you know, I, I forget all, most of the details of her life, so forgive me. I'm going to give a little bit of a roundabout. She was an American woman, a suburban housewife, okay, as American and as ordinary of a human being, seemingly, as you could get. She was living in the 50s, and the Cold War was at its height, and the constant threat of nuclear war was, was on everybody's mind. And she got so fed up with it. She wasn't religious. She didn't have a religious thought about, her, about things. She didn't become a monk. She didn't become a nun. She didn't join a church. What did she do? She got so fed up with the way things were, she walked out the front door of her house with an apron on. In the pocket of apron, she had one little uh, notepad, a pencil, and a comb. She walked out of her house and never returned to it. She walked back and forth across the United States something like 15 times on foot, talking only of peace, talking only of love. That was all she talked about. That was all she said. And she says this. This was somewhere in her journey. She said, most of the time, there's a book called Peace Pilgrim. There's a website. I think it's called peacepilgrim.org, maybe. There, there's a large following of people that follow her teachings 
even though she wasn't religious and didn't belong to a particular religion, they've gathered all of her teachings and for free, you can write to them and have them send you the books if you want to read about her life. There's, there's a book of her teachings, a book of, about her life and her story. And so I really encourage you, it's the most, one of the most beautiful things you'll read about another human being in your life. So she walks out of her front door, never returns. She, she sleeps under bridges. She says uh, that there were times where she thought that she wasn't going to survive, and she tells these wonderful faith-building stories, you know, that we, that we all enjoy so much, where, you know, one night it was beginning to snow. She was in the woods. It was cold, and she was looking for somewhere to sleep, and she had found uh, a bridge, a small little bridge over a creek, and she was uh, trying to climb over the wall to get down to get under the bridge when a car comes and actually picks her up and then takes her to their home and gives her a place to stay. And that happens again and again for her. There's amazing stories. But she writes about her own experience. She says, I was out walking early in the morning. All of a sudden I felt very uplifted, more uplifted than I had ever been. So you see both of these experiences so far, they're having something that is notably different from anything else that they've experienced in their life. And they're both seasoned adults, so they've had tons of experiences. So this thing that we're talking about, this, this knowing of God, mm -hmm. is something that will be unlike any experience that you've ever had. It will be deeper and more profound, and it will leave you utterly changed. It will leave you a saint, actually. Everybody who seems to have this experience comes out the other side as a saint. You know, of course, it's us calling them saints. They see themselves as more themselves than they've ever been. I was out walking early in the morning, and all of a sudden I felt very uplifted, more uplifted than I had ever been. I remember I knew timelessness, spacelessness, and lightness. I did not seem to be walking on the earth, but every flower, every bush, every tree seemed to wear a halo. There was a light emanating around everything, and flecks of gold fell like slanted rain through the air. The most important part was not the phenomena. The important part of it was the realization of the oneness of all creation. The oneness of all creation. Seeing the beloved from whom it all exudes, from whom it is all coming and to know that the bottom line, the summation of every experience is love, compassion, caring. To know that that's the root of the universe and that, that that same character, as it were, that beloved, you know, the, the, the man of all religions, that all religions catch a glimpse of, that woman, that she lives, she has stamped permanently in you that image within you for you to touch, for you to find. As a matter of fact, the sages say that's the whole point of your life is to touch that place even once within you, to find that inner shrine where God meets the material in the form of your soul, the form of you. The sages say that it's somewhere right in this area physically for us. It, of course, it's not physical. You can't go in and cut it out. but. That's where, the, where it seems to live, is in the heart. And so when you meditate, you go to this cave of the heart. St. John of the Cross goes to the cave of the heart. You know, uh, he has a, a place there. Uh, St. Teresa has a castle <laughs> that she visits that's in, in the heart. You know. So to find that place. Now we're going to jump in over to the words of, of a mystic from uh, Calcutta, or not Calcutta, from Bombay. Uh, his name is Sri Nishagadatta Maharaj, and he came to realize God uh, by making cigarettes. <laughs> Which is reason enough for me to listen to everything he says. <laughs> he says, from my point of view, everything happens by itself, quite spontaneously. But man imagines that he works for an incentive, toward a goal. He has always a reward in mind and strives for it. To want nothing and to do nothing, that is true creation. To watch the universe emerging and subsiding in one's own heart is a wonder. And 
one of the people listening to him says, Is there no need for effort then? He replies, When effort is needed, effort will appear. When effortlessness becomes essential, it will assert itself. You need not push life about. Just flow with it. Give yourself completely to the task at the present moment, which is the dying now to the now. For living is dying. Without death, life cannot be. So he throws us a few pieces there. They sound a little philosophical. So let's unpack them. He says everything happens by itself quite spontaneously. You see, the, the, the major function of all religious practice, all of them, is to break down the ego. You know, for the Christian, it's to have the mind of Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You know, we get rid of this lower self, get rid of this idea of me as body and mind, and take on the ideas, assert the ideas of me as pure love, me as infinite, birthless and deathless, me as pure intelligence. To take that on. And if you understand that, if you understand that that, that pure love is your nature, that that, in, in Vedanta, they, the, the Sanskrit word is satchit ananda, it means I am existence. I, I, well, it means I am absolute existence. You, you are, <laughs> God is existence. God doesn't exist. God is existence. You as his image are the verb of that existence. You are existence. You exist. God is love. He's not loving. God is love. You, as his image, are the verb of that love. You are loving. God is intelligence itself. You, as his image, are intelligent. You see, so you've got the Father is the absolute. There's no change. There's no movement there. Why? Because it's perfection. Things only move when they're uncomfortable. Things only move when they have a lack of something else. Things always move. A building my father taught me when I was a kid, building blocks, that when a, when a set of blocks falls, I was amazed when my dad told me that there was a, actually a, 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 a thing going on there, that the thing wasn't just falling down. He says every piece is falling until it finds its own stability. And that building will fall until it finds its stability. And so God is that. God is that stability. God the Father within the Christian context. God the Father is that stability, that unmovable perfection of love, perfection of intelligence, perfection of existence. Jesus is the verb of that. He's the perfect verb, the perfect response to the absolute. He reflects God perfectly in action. And what, what is the only perfect response to perfect love? Absolute self-abnegation. Let go completely. Jesus gave up everything to be one with the Father, to return to that, to that unity. And that tension between the two, this is all free. I'm just throwing in these thoughts as extra little tidbits, little spices that come to mind. That tension between God, the absolute, the Father, unchanging, unmoved, and Jesus, the perfect reflection of that, the, 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 the perfect verb of love, of intelligence, the stress of two looking, the, of one looking like two, the tension in between there is what you would call the Holy Spirit. That tension to bring everything back to oneness, to give up all sense of ego, all sense of other, to see that divinity, that love, that purity, that infinity in all things, starting with each other. That's the idea behind, behind that. And so he's saying here that because you have this perfect image within you, that when you stop doing everything, because you're motivated by an ego self, which isn't you, it's a you that you've created over the years, that's identified with all the things that you think that you've learned about yourself. And that ego self feels like it's responsible, feels like it has to do everything, feels like it has to gather everything for itself. And that if it stops doing that, nothing's going to happen. Everything will become absolutely inert. That would be true if you were not the image of the beloved, if you were not the image of God. 
But what the sages, what he's trying to tell us here, what Sri Nishagadatta is saying, when you stop the ego self, when you stop being responsible for all the things that you're doing, your body's not going to stop moving. You're not just going to stop going to work and whatnot, because all of that is part of your karmic wheel. And the body-mind will respond to it and do what it needs to do. But you're not the one doing it. God is doing all of this. And God will do all of this continuously. What changes is your understanding of it when you see it as a whole, when you see it in its entirety, when you understand what you're looking at, that you're not looking at bodies and minds. You're looking at your beloved. You're not seeing a sun, a material sun, just shining light onto leaves. You're watching love in its active form. You're seeing love manifested. And he's saying that if you learn to live from the space of identifying yourself as love, as intelligence, as being, that things will go on perfectly, beautifully. And you will just be a witness to God's movie, to God's story, to God's love, God's love in this world. And your understanding will be deep. And it will change the way that you live. Sri Nishigadatta in another place, he's saying, someone was asking, well, what about service of others if I'm doing nothing? He says, well, what happens? He says, you go, you see a homeless man sitting on the street. He said, you see, the ego self will look at that man and see him from the outside in. So you'll see he's dirty, you'll see he's a man, you'll see he's old, then you'll see he's hungry, and then you'll know that he's suffering. He says, the heart self, who has had this experience of unity, will see the suffering man and suffer because he knows the man to be himself. And he will alleviate the suffering of that man, not out of a, let me help you because I'm someone not needing help myself. Let me help you, put myself above you and reach down to you, which never works in the long run, which never works. That's impure service. Pure service is service done as worship. Pure service is something done I am you. We must alleviate our suffering. There's no higher and lower in that relationship. There's no possibility of resentment. There's no debt being accumulated by the person you're helping. You and them are one. That's where service comes from. That's where the love of Jesus comes from. He didn't go around helping adulterers. That's not what he was about. He, he saw himself in the state of adultery, and he felt that pain. He felt that brokenness. He felt that need. He felt that lack of security. And he acted accordingly. Because he sees himself everywhere, always present. And that nature is love. And so he responds in love. So that's what Sri Nishagadatta is saying here. He's saying when effort is needed, it will appear. You don't need to worry about it. That will be part of you. That will be part of what arises. You just keep worshiping. Take whatever's in front of you and do it as worship. I always, I think I said it last time too, I always draw the DMV form because you can't think of a more mundane thing than filling out a form at the DMV. <laughs> you know, so you're sitting out there for, filming that form. Normally we're doing things for reward, right? That's what he's saying here. Normally the ego self is always doing to get. Always doing to get. If there's not a, if there's not a, a discernible return on it, we don't do it, right? And he's saying, don't, don't live in that space. Do what you do with love and with worship, expecting nothing in return. So you're not filling out a form as a part of process. You're filling out a form as worship. So you're doing it really well. You're writing your name really carefully. You're doing it all very neatly. You're not missing any of those boxes. And then when you're handing it over, you're not handing it over to that mean woman behind the desk who's, you know, telling you to hurry up so that you can get next in line. No, you're handing it to your beloved. Your worship that you just filled out of all the best of your ability, you're now handing it to your beloved as your worship. How's that going to affect your relationship with this mean woman behind the desk? You're going to see your beloved in her. Why? Because it's the beloved in you that filled out the form. And the world becomes this light, becomes this love. Little by little, when you go to the, to the teller or the checkout counter at the grocery store, instead of looking at some random teenager who's working for money for college, <laughs> you see your beloved. 
you know that the image of your beloved, the image of your God, the one that you love, is behind that personality looking out at you, behind that body looking out at you, and that they are doing their work for you in the same way that you're doing your work for them. And when you talk to them, it's a prayer, because you recognize first that you're talking to your beloved. How's that going to change what you say? How's that going to change how you say it? And I can tell you one thing that I know from experience over and over and over again. If you talk to somebody as your beloved, they respond as your beloved. If you look at someone's eyes and you don't look at them as a person, you don't look at them as a body and as a personality, but you look at them as love itself, how does that change the way you look at them? How does that change the way you feel being around them? How does it change what you want for them? Let yourself soak into the light of love that's all around you. Let yourself see the image of your beloved that has been stamped in the heart of every single living being. And respond naturally. You won't have to work at becoming a loving person. You won't have to work at being an unselfish person. You won't have to work at, at, at uh, not being angry. Why? Because none of those things are you anyway. That's why you're not happy with them. You are love. That's why it hurts to not love. You are intelligence. That's why stupidity hurts. <laughs> oh, I'm so dumb, I can't believe I did that. <laughs> you know? Let yourself out. Stop exerting the self you think you are. And let that which you are out. Let it come. Don't be afraid to love. Don't be afraid to be overly intimate with the cashier. Be loving. Take their hand into yours, you know, if you want, <laughs> whatever. Wherever it leads you, go there. Don't be afraid. Don't censor this inner spirit with fear. Don't do it. He says this whole idea, he says, uh, just flow with life. Give yourself completely to the task at the present moment, which is dying now to the now. Yeah, that's this idea. Don't think about what things are for. Don't go to work for the paycheck. Don't go to work to get the job done. Don't go to work to be an engineer. All the people at the center, from the center are thinking, oh, here he goes. <laughs> Why do you go to work? You go to work to love. And incidentally, you're an engineer. You go to work as intelligence itself. Incidentally, you're an engineer or a waitress or a bartender or whatever you are. Be what you are all the time. Don't put on different yous for different things. Be love all the time. Be free. So I'm going to close here. I've got a few quick reading things I'm going to read through. I could spend another hour, but I won't torture you. The Peace Pilgrim says, we tend to skim right over the present time. Since this is the only moment that we can actually live, if you don't live it, you're never really going to get around to living at all. If you do not live this present moment, oh, if you do live this present moment, you tend not to worry. For me, every moment is a new opportunity to be of service. So move into this present moment. We talked the last time about, the, the, at the end of the session, someone asked what the Vedantic idea of time was. I said, time doesn't exist, right? There's not such thing as time. Even the physics professors say that. None such thing as time. So where do we get this idea from? I'm going to give a long, an hour's lecture in two minutes. You, you, take, you take everything that you like in this world that's supposed to just flow. Remember, Peace Pilgrims, or Sri Nishagadatta says, let life flow. Let it go. Don't try to hold on to things. They just come and they go through this window of the moment. Peace Pilgrim is saying, live in this window, be in this window, and let whatever's here be everything. Because what happens is you see things in the present that you know are going to go away. And you, being the immortal, want them to be immortal also. So what do you do? You grab them and you put them in your mind. You give them your own immortality. You share your immortality with them and you hold them in your mind. They become your attachments, the things you couldn't let go of, the things you didn't want to let go of. Which seems like a fine thing, except that they become lenses through which the present is then observed. And you can no longer see God as God. 
Now you've got interpretations based on all the things that you liked and didn't like, projecting on that moment. And what happens is that if you smell pizza, there we had to go with the pizza. If you smell pizza, if you're living in the moment, you can just enjoy the smell of pizza. Ah, oh, that's wonderful. But if you're a man of attachments, you'll grab up the idea of pizza and you'll think, hmm, I don't want to just smell pizza, I want to eat pizza, right? Because that's what he did, right? Did he not do the same thing in the garden, right? She saw that fruit and she didn't just say, oh, what a beautiful fruit and leave it at that. She thought, no, that's going to be good to eat. That's going to give me, that's going to make me like God. It's going to fulfill me. It's going to make me whole. And so what, you, what, what happens then is your attachments, these things you've stored in your mind, pervert the moment. You don't see the fullness of God in it. You see need. I've got to get pizza. So what do you have to do? You have to create a future. Because now you have to come up with a plan of manifesting pizza in the present. Right? So your past is your attachments. Your future is your desires. Most of us spend the time flipping back and forth between them. And that's why Peace Pilgrim is saying most of us never live in the moment. And what a bizarre thing that is, because that's the only place you live. You can't affect the past, you can't affect the, the, the future, aside from affecting this moment. So be present, be fully present, and work from your home base, knowing I am unconditioned love, I am unmitigated intelligence, I am absolute existence, I've never been born, I will never die. I am immortal. Work in that place. Experiment with it. See what it does to your life. But work at it you must, because every single experience of your day will try to pull you into that ego self, because that's our common convention. That's what we've taught each other, and it doesn't work. <laughs> so give it up. There's many verses here that I collected from the New Testament that say these things in many different ways. If you want, I'll share them with you one-on-one. -on -one. But uh, this is the experience that's available to you and open to you as a person. Use whatever means necessary. If you're a Christian, use your Christianity. Jesus can take you there. He wants to take you there. If you're a Buddhist, use your Buddhism. Buddha walked there. Buddha lives there wants you to be there. Follow Krishna. Follow anything. Follow your own self like, like a peace pilgrim. Just live that idea of love. Live that idea. And see your beloved. Why wait until the body dies? What sense is that? You're going to be here another what? Five years, ten years, twenty years, forty years, who knows? Why not make them pure bliss? Why not mint gold? <laughs> <laughs>